welcome. This is an awesome podcast. This yeah. is one of my favorite ones. <laughs> to the Jeff. It's a lot of whiskey, Jeff. Macalino. Jeff Macalino. 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 Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Jeff Macalino Podcast. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks for liking and sharing and all those stuff. Uh, the ratings continue to go up. These last two weeks have uh, been a major increase over the previous two weeks, which was the highest rated two weeks in the show's history. So I appreciate you tuning in and uh, sharing it. Uh, you know, you don't want you know, some episodes even, you just might want to share an episode here or there. I know a lot of people aren't podcast people, uh, but I appreciate the support. I got a lot going on. I wanted to just touch on a couple things before we get into this super exciting episode. Uh, first off, if you're into sports, uh, you've probably heard me mention I do a podcast for flteams.com. I do a uh, lightning and rays podcast called bolts and bats in the bay uh it's a good podcast if you uh are a fan of the teams but maybe don't have time to pay all the attention to them during the week kind of gives you a rundown gives you some talking points uh that you know come from the brain of myself uh also we're having a big time if you're a football fan we're having a mock draft with uh all well, I was going to say all 32 teams, but every team that has a first-round draft pick, we're doing a first-round mock draft with a representative for each team. I will be picking for the Saints, predictably. Um, so that's exciting. Check that out. That's the Tuesday before the draft, which is uh, April 26th. Uh, it'll be a live broadcast, uh, which is a lot of fun. I've been doing those for, goodness, every Wednesday for probably five, six weeks now. For FL teams, uh, always enjoy doing that. You can check that out uh, anywhere, um, you know, Facebook Live. It's on Twitter Spaces. It's on YouTube. You can comment uh, on Twitter Spaces. You can actually, you know, join in uh, like a like a phone call almost type deal. Um, so check those out if you're into sports. Uh, that's fun. Uh, also, uh, trying to start putting more on my YouTube. I I put two things up this past week. Uh, one thing I titled Drunk Jeff Eats, and I got the Air Land and Sea Burger from McDonald's. Uh, it is a monstrosity uh, in appearance and in size, and you should check out the video if you want to know more about it. And then give me a subscription over there. I also put out a bonus episode of the podcast that I only put on YouTube that was with, uh, you know, mostly sports. It was with uh, Ryan Kalerik who is a host of a Saints podcast called Bring the Wood. Um, that was fun chatting with him. We talked about a little bit about Tiger Woods, uh, but mostly about the Saints. Um, again, you know, I figured that's a, a good bonus episode for anyone who wants to uh, get my thoughts on the Saints. Uh, lastly, if you're looking for Jeff Macalino content, I don't believe I mentioned I was on an episode of a podcast called Don't watch sober uh and this is a podcast that watches bad movies uh and literally i think the funnest way to probably experience it is to pull up the movie yourself and watch it with us as uh two uh ladies who host the podcast and i went on as a guest we watched 
a groundhog uh, styled movie called Naked on Netflix, starring, I believe, it's one of the Wayne's brothers. And I'm blanking. I apologize. Um, actually, a lot of recognizable faces in that movie. Uh, it had a zero Rotten Tomatoes score, and uh, I can see why. Uh, but check out that podcast if you're so inclined. Uh, or if you're just stuck at home by yourself, you know, on a weekend night, just pop on Netflix and, and throw Naked on and listen to the podcast. It'll be like you're watching the movie with uh, three friends. <laughs> Uh, all right, so this podcast is one I'm super, super excited for. Dr. Jeff Zwierink, uh, he is, I'll kind of just read you his bio. He is a uh, research scholar for Reasons to Believe. He earned a BS in physics and a PhD in astrophysics with a focus on gamma rays from Iowa State University. Uh, he did a uh, uh, postdoctoral research in gamma rays led him to the University of California, Riverside. He continues to work as a project scientist at UCLA on GAPS, which I don't know what that means. It's all uppercase, uh, but it's a balloon experiment seeking to detect dark matter. He's also a co-author on more than 30 academic papers published in peer-reviewed journals such as Astrophysical Journal, journal Astroparticle Physics, and astrobiology. Um, so yeah, a lot of words. He's an astrophysicist, and I was super excited to have a real live scientist uh, on the podcast to talk to me. Um, you'll hear it in just a minute. Um, we talk about dark matter, space travel, uh, Christianity, uh, the multiverse, a lot of stuff, real fun conversation with Dr. Jeff, um, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to it, and, uh, you know, he's a real scientist, so hopefully I don't sound too dumb. Uh, hey, but before we get to that, guys, this video is sponsored by my friends, Geology. Uh, this is an award-winning men's skincare company. They formulate customized skincare routine just for you. Uh, they use a handful of powerful, proven ingredients that have been trusted by dermatologists for a decade. Um, you know, they can help you no matter what. You, if you suffer from acne, dark eye circles under your eyes, wrinkles, or sensitive skin, look no further. If you have pretty nice skin like I do, it still helps to, you know, keep me looking young for a little bit longer. Uh, to get started, you take their geology as a 30-second diagnostic quiz talk, asking you questions about your skin, and their team of dermatologists will design and ship a regimen directly to your door. Super simple. Uh, you can start today with the 30-day trial of their four uh, products, or they have more than four products, but these are the ones that I've been using. They have their Everyday Face Wash, Vital Morning Face Cream, Repairing Night Cream, and Nourishing Eye Cream. Head to geology.com, take their skincare quiz, and use the link in the show notes below. Ends in uh, the promo code, which is JMAC50. Use that link to let them know you heard about it from the Jeff Macalino podcast. All right, folks. Enjoy this episode. I'll see you on the flip side.
All right, everyone, I am now very pleased to welcome to the Jeff Macalino podcast, Dr. Jeff Zwierink. How are you? How are you, Jeff? I'm doing well, Jeff. Looking forward to our conversation today. Yes, me too. Me too. Um, just to give uh, my guests, I'll just kind of uh, read a, a real brief rundown. Um, and uh, we're, we're dealing with a much different educational levels here. So, uh, Jeff, uh, earned his BS in physics, a PhD in astrophysics with a focus on gamma rays, uh, and also uh, uh, currently working as, as a project scientist uh, on a balloon experiment seeking to detect, detect dark matter. Um, so, I mean, I took K through 12 science and a course or two in college. <laughs> Um, it's very funny. I will say I hated science all as a kid, all through college. Even I, I hated science. Uh, I wouldn't say I hated it. I just didn't enjoy it. And now as an adult, it's like, I don't know, the last five years or so it's become almost a weird obsession of, of, you know, it's, it, it leads to all the answers I feel like. <laughs> so it's weird how that works. Well, if you don't mind me asking, why did you at best tolerate it and not like it while you're in school? Because my opinion is science may be hard, but it should never be boring. So, yeah, it. I think the only topic that actually interested me in school was like astronomy. Hmm. Um, I didn't really care for biology, uh, anatomy, stuff like that. Chemistry wasn't wasn't uh, wasn't something I that really didn't seem fun to me. <laughs> um, okay. And astronomy, at least in my high school, was like the lower level science class. And I was in more advanced classes. So, if, you know, if I got shuffled off into chemistry and I'm like, I kind of want to do what they're doing. Oh, yeah. Um, and then in, in college, I just, you know, I was a part of an honors program where we had to take two or three science classes and it was what they said we had to take. So uh, and it was like environmental studies and uh I don't even remember the other one. It was so it was just like not topics that were really intriguing to me. Um, but I, I think as you you get older, you start hearing you know people talk about it on podcasts and stuff. And uh, you know, hell, I, I think even the Marvel movies to an extent make you think a lot more about you know things like the multiverse and space travel and stuff like that. Um, and maybe it's just as you get older, you, you have more of a sense of uh, mortality. <laughs> and, and maybe that's part of wanting to know more about what's out there. Fair point. No, I, I, I agree. It's, uh, well, I mean, I, I, I don't relate in that for as long as I can remember, I've always been fascinated with why things work the way they do. And that's really what a scientist is doing is just figuring out why do things work the way they do. But uh, I have had enough of, where I recognize a teacher can make a tremendous difference and whether the, not, not whether it's hard or not, because there are just certain things that are harder to learn than others, right. whether it's interesting or, you know, that, that they can draw you in and make it more engaging. And I I've had a number of really good science teachers and I like science to start with, but uh, I've had my fair share of teachers and subjects that don't make the subjects interesting. And I'm like, ah, that's a shame because even the topics that I didn't, wasn't always particularly interested and when I had a good teacher, it's like, oh, this is fascinating. Uh, so I, it, it just it goes to the importance of having good teachers. So, yeah, yeah. Good teachers. And then, uh, you know, good, uh, good, 
you know, school systems that don't, you know, teach to the test. I think that was always part of my thing with, uh, I love history, but too often history is taught the same way where it's like a trivia contest. And science, I think sometimes is taught that way too. Who discovered this? Well, that's trivia. That's not teaching, you know, teaching us that Isaac Newton discovered gravity. You know, that's not teaching us what gravity is. That's teaching us trivia behind it. Um, and that was kind of, I, I don't think I understood that as a kid, but now that I'm older, it's like, I think that's my problem is I was, I was learning trivia, but I wasn't learning the actual how things work. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, I think that's kind of the teaching to the test model that, that might uh, have some kids kind of lose interest early on in, in certain things. But yeah, I, I think you're right. It, it's a lot relies on the teacher and the school system. That is true. So you're currently working uh, on, uh, well, let's, let's just go here. I don't even know what dark matter is. I, I've heard of it. And uh, my first thought was like, is that the bad magic from Harry Potter? And no, I don't think that's it. <laughs> um, so as easily as you can, can you explain kind of what dark matter is and the importance uh, of discovering that? Yeah, well, there's this one really cool feature of the way our universe is set up is that uh, when you're looking out in the heavens, and this is what this is what uh, Newton actually recognized was uh, when an apple falls to the ground, it's because of the gravity, mutual gravitational attraction of the Earth and the apple. And when he looked out in the heavens, he realized, hey, the moon is just effectively falling towards Earth. It's just moving in such a way that as it falls, it follows the curvature of the earth. And so it goes into orbit. So why the moon orbits for the same reason that an apple falls to the ground. But uh, the ingenious, or one of the cool features of that is that because the moon is so, or the earth is so much more massive than the moon. Uh, if you want to figure out how much mass the earth has, you look at the moon's orbit because the mass of the earth is what determines the moon's orbit. And that again is because the earth is so much more massive. So. Uh, you can look at the moon, figure out its orbit, and say, okay, the Earth has so much mass. Similarly, if you want to calculate the mass of the sun, look at the orbits of all the planets. Well, we can now take that aspect of the way creation works, look out into galaxies, and by measuring the motion of stars in a galaxy, you can figure out how much mass is there. And, and again, it's just the same phenomenon. Now, so we can figure out how much mass is in a galaxy, but then we can also go count up and say, all right, we can count up the stars because they give off light. And we know how we know how to determine, convert from light into mass. And so we can calculate how much mass there is in the stars that give off light. And it turned out as, as astronomers did these calculations, there was far more matter in the galaxies than that was than that they could count in the stars. And so this extra matter didn't give off light. And so being very creative in our naming schemes, we called it dark matter. And that's you know, it's so it's it's this matter that doesn't give off light. We can measure its gravitational attraction. We see it in galaxies. And in fact, as we've investigated more to explain the dynamics of the universe, to explain the dynamics of solar systems, dark. Dark matter is everywhere. So it's this stuff that's out there. It has, uh, we can quantify how much mass is out there, but we don't know what it is. We think it's a particle because everything we know that has mass is a particle. And so we're trying to figure out what kind of particle it is. And so we build experiments now that 
can look for certain types of particles. And that's what I'm working on is one of the, ex or the experiment I'm working on. It's looking for if dark matter is a certain kind of particle, we're going to be able to measure this particular thing. And that's what we're looking for. And then when you can measure that is the main purpose of it to just get a better sense of the sky's size and scope of the universe overall, or is it just to see what it, what it's actually made of or. It's all of that. I mean, you know, and kind of the, the embarrassing question, if you ask a, a cosmologist or a astrophysicist, do, do, we, do we understand the universe? We'll say yes. And then we'll get into the details. And what you'll find is that um, all the stars, the galaxies, everything we talk about, all of that stuff comprises about 5% of the universe. And so that's the normal matter, the electrons, the protons, all of that sort of stuff that we see. There's another roughly six times that amount of stuff that's this stuff called dark matter. And, and then there's another 30 or 70% of the universe that's roughly this stuff called dark energy. And all we know about the dark matter is that it's mass. And all we know about dark energy is it has a property that it wants to expand. And so the kind of the embarrassing reality is that we know that there's this dark matter out there. It controls the dynamics of about 30% of the universe, but we really have no idea what it is. And so uh, we know it's there, but we don't know is, you know, what kind of particle is it? Is it, you know, there's a possibility that we may just have our physics entirely wrong, but most likely it's a particle. But by measuring the particle, we can now better understand how those particles work, understand the dynamics of the universe, because the reality of it is you and I sitting here in our studios, looking at our cameras, sitting on the earth, we're just floating through a sea of dark matter and these particles are streaming through us, hardly ever interacting, but yet they drive a major component of the dynamics of the universe. And we really don't know anything about it except that it has mass. So we really want to figure what is it so that we can better understand. Right. And that uh, presumably, if we can figure out what it is, that opens the door to a bunch of different opportunities. I mean, uh, it's it's interesting as it relates to I'm just thinking as far as space travel uh, and uh, longtime listeners of my podcast will know I, I had a weird, lucid dream years ago where I was abducted by aliens in essence and their, their species lived on a gigantic planet-sized station uh, and they just traveled they collected resources and stuff like that they didn't have a planet there again this was a real detailed dream but their theory on on planetary living was it was for the less advanced the more advanced species learn how to travel they can control the climate they can control everything about their planet and if they need resources they can get the best ones from different planets hmm. um so my my thing has always been i think long term humanity needs to find a way to not rely on earth we need to find a way if, as a species to be mobile um but it seems like we're maybe thousands of years away from high speed space travel and i put high speed in quotation marks <laughs> um you know things things like we see in sci-fi movies like warp drive and star trek i think most people i've talked to have said that's not really physically ever going to be possible um and the the way marvel does it is there's little i don't know what they call them but basically little checkpoints in the universe you hit and you come out the other side right um and and 
I, I don't know. Could dark matter even relate to those kind of checkpoints potentially? I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's possible in the sense that we know dark matter has mass, but we don't know a lot of the details behind it. You know, in all likelihood, it's just a particle like a proton and electron, and it interacts uh, according to the laws of physics that we already know. And so there's probably nothing that esoteric about it. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, there, there's, there's, there's the unknown part. And so there is that possibility out there, um, you know, and... Uh, Part of the challenge, uh, you know, you alluded to is that in, in sci-fi, space travel is just kind of taken for granted. Yeah. Uh, the reality of it is traveling through the universe is incredibly difficult. Um, and there's kind of competing things. You say, okay, well, you want to, you know, there's just huge distances between things in space. The closest star to us, if we wanted to travel there, traveling at the speed of light would take four years to get there. So that's a, a huge difference distance, even to the closest star. And so, well, we don't travel anywhere near those velocities. And so that's just going to take thousands, tens of thousands of years. Well, you say, all right, we can travel faster. But that carries its own set of problems because the faster you go, the more energy is involved in the collisions that happen. And so running into a dust particle or something as you're traveling through space could rip your ship apart. And so there are these kind of competing features that Everybody looks at, uh, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, whatever your favorite sci-fi universe is. And, oh, yeah, traveling around is no big deal. It's really a technically very challenging problem. <laughs> it may not even be possible. Yeah, it, it seems like that. And it, even if they tried to launch something like that, they, I mean, at this point, they'd have to be like, all right, you all have to breed and raise your children to run the ship and make sure they do the same thing. And my thought is always like, you know, halfway through that journey, we might zip on by and say, hey, we, we figured out the technology now. Sorry, you guys wasted your whole lives on this journey. <laughs> well, and even, I mean, you know, if you, you deal enough with parents and kids and you realize as hard as you try, you may not be able to propagate on your values to your kids. And they may decide, hey, this just isn't worth it up here. Because I, I mean, just to give a scale of the problem, given our current technology, we have launched spacecraft out into space that are traveling, you know, it's like thousands of miles per hour, you know, tens of thousands, like 60,000 miles per hour. So this is no small speeds. And, you know, I mean, a big accomplishment. At those speeds, the, the, the probe that is farthest away from us right now, it will take 40,000 years before it is closer to another star than to the sun. And another 40,000 years beyond that to actually get to another star. So, I, you know, like I said, these are enormous time spans. I mean, you're talking roughly the time span that humanity has been on Earth. And that's just to get to the close, closer to the closest star. So it's, it's a big, challenging problem. Uh, you know, a fun problem to work on, but I'm not going to, I'm hesitant to bet against humanity figuring it out, but I'm not going to put a lot of stock in it at this point. So, well, and I feel like it, there's the, you know, in our lifetime kind of discussion. And, and it's like, it, all of that stuff seems pretty much impossible unless, I, my, my thought again goes to, unless some alien species comes and gifts us technology that, that helps us, um, which kind of leads to, uh, I mean, I have to bring up aliens because there's a, a couple of questions there is, I don't know if you, you know, there's always, I mean, now I guess the Pentagon has confirmed UFO sightings. That doesn't, you know, my thought is always that doesn't mean that they're aliens. That just means we can't identify what it is. Um, 
you know, people all over the world have had photos of aliens or alien encounters, allegedly. Um, I think some people claim abductions, but you know, I guess if you were abducted by aliens, you would come off as crazy, <laughs> even if you were telling the truth. So in fairness, um, but do you, what do you think? Do you think aliens have knowledge of earth? Do you think they're, they've, do you think they even exist? I guess that, that would be a better starting point. <laughs> well, I, the, the way I answer the question when people ask me that question is that I don't think they exist, but it wouldn't surprise me if we find them. And, you know, again, uh, there, there's this kind of, uh, you know, you, you look at the culture and how things are. I mean, you know, you just dominant throughout our culture today is the idea. I mean, you look at the movies and everything and aliens always exist. In fact, I remember, uh, you know, hopefully this is not too much of a spoiler because it was a movie that's at least 20, almost 30 years old with signs where it's kind of purported as a, you know, it's not a science fiction movie, but the alien actually was real. And at least most of the movies I'd seen, it's kind of either, oh, we're off in sci-fi land or, you know, the Scooby-Doo where everything that was actually the alien turned out to be people doing stuff. And so the fact that the alien was real was a big deal. Um, I think people are just kind of predisposed at this point to think that aliens exist out there. But I think, you know, when, when you look at all of what our existence here on earth requires it's a pretty our earth is a pretty remarkable planet uh you know just among other things uh when the earth first formed it was entirely covered in water had no planets on it whatsoever the the oceans would have been this murky green color because they'd have just been filled with iron and that's that's the kind of the kind of color you're going to get the cloud the atmosphere would have been very cloudy there's virtually no life on earth in its earliest moments and the sun would be anywhere from 30 to 40 percent dimmer than it is now over the course of time earth's oceans have transformed from iron rich to very oxygen rich that's that deep blue you're going to get um, <clears throat> you get uh, the continents now cover about 30 percent the surface of the earth the atmosphere has tremendously changed not only in its structure, but in its composition. So instead of being overcast, dark, kind of prohibiting sunlight from getting the earth, it's now largely clear almost all the time. The kind of life on earth has gone from simple single cellular life to this complex, diverse array of life that exists on earth. And the sun's luminosity has increased from about 70% of its current value up to its current value. Any one of those changes could have radically altered Earth's capacity to host life. And what we find in the midst of all of those incredible radical changes, that Earth's average temperature has remained in about a 20 degrees Celsius window over 4 billion years. That is incredible. Um, you know, so what I see is this kind of symphony of events working together that not only are preparing the planet for more advanced, so that the planet Earth is capable of hosting more advanced life, but it does so in a way that it is always hosting life. And it's at times it's kind of tipped on the edge of about becoming uninhabitable. And so in a very real sense, you know, this isn't quite the question you asked, but to me, this is a, a fascinating scientific question is life out there. But even from a theological question, I, I just look at what God has done here to make earth habitable for us. And the question is, did he do it somewhere else? And Christians have been arguing about that question I can document it for at least 400 years, but it wouldn't surprise me to find that Adam and Eve were arguing about that in the Garden of Eden. So, right, that's a, it's an interesting. Uh, there's a couple parts to it. One is 
I've I've said many times also is if aliens do know we exist, if there are aliens and they know that we exist, they're not going to waste their time because they obviously have the technology to discover us and we can't even come close to seeing them. They'd probably just leave us alone until we were more advanced. So I, I don't think we're going to discover aliens anytime soon, uh, personally. And then you're right. It is an interesting thought. Um, thinking of you know, God creating the universe and everything is, you know, was Earth the only one he did this on? <laughs> I mean, presumably he could have, you know, done one planet in every few galaxies that just he thought was a nice fit or presumably, you know, you know, I don't know if this goes against Christian beliefs. Presumably we could be his second try <laughs> or third try uh, at, at, you know, creating a species that could inhabit a planet and not, you know, destroy it or kill each other or whatever. I mean, we'll, we'll see how long that goes on, <laughs> but that, that was basically what CS Lewis was describing in his space trilogy. Um, you know, there's, there's multiple planets, you know, he's restricting himself within our solar system and in, in terms of what he's looking at, but he's, he's got that idea that there are, uh, not not so much that God was taking multiple tries at it, but uh, what goes on here on Earth actually impacts how how life develops on other planets and whether they fall into sin or not. So uh, there's a there's a fascinating, rich theological discussion of you know what is life here on Earth? What is God doing? Might He have created life other places? How does that affect redemption and the incarnation? And the, the, what's a, one of the things that surprised me? when I first started looking at this, is I kind of had this sense that, okay, scientifically, we're starting to find that there are planets out there. And so Christians have kind of scrambled to kind of have a place at the table and have thoughts. And what I've recognized, what, what, the, what the literature and the scholarship shows is that Christians have thought about this for centuries and millennia. It's like science is the late player to the game. That Christians have thought about this for a long time, and there are a lot of rich theological discussions on whether aliens exist, and if they do, how do they fit in with good Christian theology? And I can tell you this, there are a lot of scenarios where they do. So fascinating theological question, great scientific question in the more recent times. Yeah, and I will say just I've always, one thing I've always thought, uh, just again, as a, as a born and raised Catholic, uh, I've always thought, you know, it doesn't if there were other life out there that would do nothing to impact, I mean, we can believe Jesus was sent down to earth and Jesus is the son of God. That doesn't mean he didn't then go to other planets. Um, it's almost narcissistic to think, well, we're the only special planet that, you know, um, it certainly could be the case. Um, but, you know, the fact that there could be other ones that he, you know, he may have sent his son there, you know, Jesus could have gone to other planets as well um that doesn't make us any less special <laughs> um that's a fair point and you know that's one of the points i make you know i mean i've got five kids and if uniqueness determines specialness then having an, another kid met my first son is no longer special because now there's two of them no it's, they're all special because they're my children they're in my image you know that, that we're special not because we're unique we're special because we're created in god's image now i do think it yeah i mean you read scripture and you don't get a lot of indication that God may have created life somewhere else. And so the, the silence of scripture to talk talking about other life is, a, is something I think it's reasonable to conclude maybe there's no other life. But the fact that scripture is silent doesn't preclude that God did it and just didn't tell us about it. So 
Right. And one thing that always fascinates me uh, with science and with 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 faith, even whether it's Christianity or any any religion, um, any legitimate religion that believes in God, I should say this. <laughs> we don't need to get into the other ones, but um, I don't know why they often seem to. I mean, I've heard the arguments as to why they clash so often. Um, I think a lot of times the scientific people, I mean, realistically, there has to be faith. You have to have blind faith to an extent to believe in God. We don't have, I mean, you may disagree, but I don't think we have scientific proof that there is a God. We, you know, can choose to interpret scientific evidence to say, yeah, it seems like there is. Um, but a lot of science, like we're talking about, even with, with what dark matter, a lot of string theory research and stuff that also relies on uh, faith that you're you're going to find something if you spend the time researching it i feel like i feel like a lot of times they they're more similar than they think but a lot of times the the extremes like they almost demonize you know again i don't know what your thoughts are i believe you are uh well, I don't want to speak for you, but I know a lot of people make fun of the, you know, the Christians who say dinosaurs didn't exist because it was only seven days. It was, you know, God made the earth and this and that, and he, no dinosaurs could exist unless they existed and went extinct in a couple of days. Um, and that's a very small amount of people. Uh, so I, I don't know what, what your thoughts are on that. I know I threw a lot at you. Well, I, I largely agree with what you're saying. I think, you know, I kind of cringed a little bit or reacted a little bit because of, you know, this notion that you got to have blind faith. And I think part of this discussion is muddied by the fact that faith gets defined in a particular way. And, you know, often it's characterized as, you know, science, you're dealing with facts and logic and reason and Christian, you know, religion, you're dealing with beliefs and faith or, you know, beliefs and faith. And it's like, no, that's not really true because, if you look at how Christianity defines faith, Christian faith is confident trust in a reliable source. Well, in that, I mean, so I am a Christian, not because I believe it, I want it to be true. I'm a Christian because I've investigated and I think it's true. And I think there's strong evidence supporting it. Um, you know, I, I don't believe I've ever actually had blind faith because my parents taught me this is what Christianity has to say. And I have every reason to trust what they were telling me. So I may not have understood what Christianity was, but I had confident trust in a reliable source, my parents teaching me this. And as I've grown up and investigated, I've looked and said, okay, do science and Christianity conflict? And every place where I thought they did, I've investigated and dug in and realized, you know, it, it, when you try and interpret both in the best light, they actually work very well together. And so that has increased my trust that Christianity is a reliable source to put my faith in. And, and I think that's what a lot of scientists actually are doing when they do science. They're saying, hey, there's this body of evidence. There's this way of doing things. I can be confident that when I do that, I get reliable information. Well, I would say that's faith. That's what I, right. I just, I'm doing the same thing when I look at the Bible as when I look at science. I'm saying, is this a trustworthy, reliable source of information? And if so, I'm going to choose to put my faith in that and trust that it's true. Uh, so I, th I think they're one and the same thing, but I, I loved your comment, and I wholeheartedly agree that there are people who seem to want to put them antagonism to one another. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned you're Catholic. I grew up evangelical. Uh, you can put Catholics and evangelicals in conflict with one another. You can 
describe those two ver two branches of Christianity as being in conflict. But at the end of the day, I mean, I think you can also look at them uh, in the most generous and say, hey, what, what's, what are they actually trying to say? And Catholics are Christians and Protestants are Christians. We don't have to put them in opposition to one another, but people can always find a way to do that. And I think that's why that narrative is so popular is because there are people who want to put science in opposition to Christianity yes. and people who want to put Christianity in opposition to science. Yeah, I've, I've said, and I can only imagine you get more frustrated by this than anyone with as much knowledge as you have. Uh, but I, I've, my thing over the last couple of months is I'm like, the biggest pandemic in this world is know-it-all-ism. Everyone <laughs> likes to think they know everything. And if someone disagrees, they're wrong. And I can only imagine you encounter people who will tell you, who have less science education than me, who will tell you you're wrong about something about science. And it's like, I don't know what gave these people this boosted up uh, ego that, you know, I, I, I'm sure someone could come and argue with you about dark matter who knows nothing about it. They watched a YouTube video once. <laughs> uh, and that's, I think sometimes that's part of it is uh, there's a, nobody wants to believe, nobody wants to hear the other side. So if you're an atheist, you don't want to even hear anything about God because, you know, you're, you're not open to that. Um, and I think that's kind of, I, I get very frustrated with, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, he tweets anti-religious things at least once a month, it seems. And it's like, for a scientist, you think you'd have an open mind, not just try to antagonize. Like you said, just, there's no reason to attack the other side, listen, and maybe, you know, discuss. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that, that's one thing. One of the things that I love about science is that when you're doing it properly, you go out and you work hard, you try and find measurements, and you recognize that your, your, your explanations, if they're done well, they're, they're built on experimental and observational evidence, that you've got an, uh, an explanation for what's going on, you recognize that it's provisional, and you want to find ways to advance it and make it more general. Um, but that's, but the, one of the things that I love about science and doing that is that if your explanation doesn't align with the facts or what the measurements are, your explanation is just wrong. It, it's not a criticism of you. It's not hitting at your identity, who you are. It just means that you're wrong on that. And that's okay. Uh, that's actually a good thing. It means now you can go investigate and say, all right, what's a better way to look at it? Right. Well, somehow in, uh, you know, in this, you know, not to be a, well, a grumpy old back in my day type thing, but it does seem like in the public discourse, we don't have a lot of, hey, I want to understand what you're saying and evaluate it. How do we mutually weigh that against reality and figure out what's the best explanation? It seems like the way to make ground in today's conversation is to get the most sharp barbed point or the best sound bite that resonates and it goes viral. So we've kind of lost that ability to genuinely disagree with someone but have an amenable conversation where both people walk away saying hey i understand what you're saying better i still disagree with it i think you're wrong you understand me better you obviously think i'm wrong but yet we still actually under we care about each other well enough to understand what you're saying so that we talk about it and then that's going to change the way i talk about it because i realize hey this person thinks about it this way 
Um, I may disagree with them, but I can't just dismiss them out of hand because they've got, this is the reasons why they think that. So uh, it, it seems like we've lost that aspect of public discourse. And, you know, at least science still has that drive to, do you anchor things in the observations we've made? Uh, whether an individual scientist does that in their personal life or not is a different question. Science drives you to want to do that well. Well said, yeah. Um, before, I, I do want to talk to you about uh, the multiverse, but before we do that, since we were talking about space travel, I did want to ask, we, we, there's been a weird space race, not maybe as aggressive as it was in the 60s, but uh, with uh, all these billionaires trying to go, go, out of, <laughs> go off Earth, and uh, I've heard people have plans to colonize Mars, I think that was Elon Musk, I think people have plans to colonize the moon. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I would think we have the, I mean, obviously we have the technology to get to these places. Um, how realistic or reasonable or fruitful do you think these would be? Do you think it's just something to be like, hey, it's cool, we did it? Or do you think it actually would be somewhat of a benefit uh, to, you know, to humanity? That's a really good question. And I, and I, I struggle to know how to answer because one of the things that I know is that if you talk about colonizing the moon, for instance, there are, there's a, it's cool that we can do that. It's incredible that we can actually make it to the moon and drive rovers around and do things like that. Um, but every time we do something like that, there are problems that things that we just take for granted here that don't work there. For example, the dust on the moon is just tenacious. It gets in and it'll grind stuff up. And so things that on earth where they just work pretty cleanly, there are so many more problems to deal with. Uh, you know, you, you think, okay, getting out to Mars and again, you know, not taking total recall and those other things where all the problems are solved. We just have to find out what the alien civilizations have done. Um, <clears throat> when you go to Mars on the surface of Mars, the atmospheric pressure is 50 times less than the top of Mount Everest. Now, if you've done any sort of study of Mount Everest, you get up above, uh, I think it's like 26, 28,000 feet, and the human body just starts dying. There's not enough oxygen up there to actually sustain life. So the entire planet of Mars has this problem. Um, you know, you got to find water on there, but you also have to worry about uh, radiation, the radiation environment on the surface of Mars is far more uh, intense than it is here on Earth because it's got such a, a less atmosphere. And our atmosphere does an incredible job of filtering out the radiation that just pervades space. If you go up on top of Earth, put a square meter of detector up there, uh, you will get over a thousand radiation hits per second in that square meter. And that's up above quite a bit of energy. And so your body is just exposed to that out in space. Uh, you know, so now you got to deal with that on Mars or on Earth, the, Earth, the Earth's atmosphere filters all that out. On Mars, it doesn't filter it out nearly as effectively. And so you're going to have these radiation problems. In fact, everything, when we put people up into space for a long time, they have bone density problems because there's not enough gravity. They have uh, spinal columns. They have brain problems. They have intestinal problems simply because space and other planets are very harsh environments. So I know all of that problem. Now, the question is, can you actually have a benefit to it? 
I don't know the answer to that. It could be that once we get out there, we find a way to do things there that we can't do here and that enhances uh, the quality of life we can live here. Um, as of right now, it's kind of a novelty bucket list thing. And I would say, somebody gave me the opportunity to go out into space and do that. I would sign up tomorrow. My only hesitation is I have a family and get a reasonable <laughs> shot of dying when you do something like that. So um, I, I understand the, the, the drive to do it. And it's, I would love to do that. Um, I just wonder about the utility of it, in part because it's an incredibly expensive venture to do it. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, you talk about traveling to Mars, that's typically you're talking three or four year round trip type thing. So there's there's a lot of challenges there. I think they're fun challenges. Uh, whether it turns out to be beneficial to humanity beyond the exploration part, I don't know. Gotcha. Yeah, that that's kind of <laughs> kind of where I figured it, it's it's again, it, it, part of me thinks with some of these guys, um, I mean, Elon is more science obsessed than a lot of the. Uh, other ones, I think, that are, you know, Jeff Bezos and, and them. Um, so he probably just views it as a challenge he wants to conquer. Um, the other guys, it just kind of, like you said, it seems like a bucket list type thing that just like, I can say I, I, I've done it. Um, again, cool, but, you know, it's good, good for you, I guess. You're a billionaire. <laughs> yeah, they, they um, more dollars to spend on that than I do at this point. So. Yeah, just a, just a couple more. <laughs> the... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I've always, the other thing I, I remember I was talking about, uh, I was talking to someone who had worked for NASA about uh, me saying, you know, we shouldn't be planetary based long term. And obviously, I, I don't mean, you know, the next few years, I mean, generations down the road. Uh, and she said, well, the only thing smart, the smartest thing about that would be we don't have a single point of failure as a species. You do want to at least figure out a way that if something happened, a cataclysmic and I mean, it would probably take an asteroid uh, to do it, but uh, at least then all of humanity is not wiped out. At least there's a large, well, at least some portion of humans that survive and maybe can repopulate someplace else. Um, but I don't think Mars or the moon, obviously, if, if the Earth gets destroyed, the moon's not going to be a place you want to live either. <laughs> and I would imagine Mars probably wouldn't probably wouldn't fare well in that either. I'm not sure. I guess it probably depends on the orbits and all that stuff, but I, I don't I don't assume anywhere in the solar system would be great if one of the planets got destroyed by a by an asteroid. Well, I mean, if if you have an asteroid hit the Earth, Mars is largely unaffected by that. In fact, the Moon would probably be unaffected by that as well. Uh, challenge with the Moon is that the same. I mean, it temperature extremes are pretty dramatic on the Moon, and uh, you know it's kind of like good restaurants you know, on the Moon. The food may be great, but there's no atmosphere up there, and so. <laughs> That makes a that makes a huge difference in how how things play out. Um, you know, in principle, you could go to Mars and you could mitigate a fair number of those problems. Maybe go deeper into the you know dig tunnels down underground. You know, I mean, there are ideas about how to do that. But one of the things that I do think is important to remember is there's just a whole lot about how our life works, and it works abundantly and easily here. I mean, I can travel virtually anywhere on earth and be relatively safe with pretty pretty unsophisticated technology I mean, you know, planes are good technology ships are pretty good technology but none of those is none of that is particularly fancy technology if you will um but i mean i can go to the equator and it's going to be hot but i'll survive there i can go to the polar regions take give me a couple of coats and we can survive there uh for most of the most of the season 
Um, but you get out into space and the bulk of space is just incredibly hostile to life. And so don't discount how readily life exists here on Earth and kind of romanticize what we can do out on other planets. Um, if we're talking about planet, any, any other body inside our solar system, we're giving up a lot. Uh, we may be able to survive there, but there's no way we're going to thrive the way we do here on Earth. Right, right, right. Well, the, uh, the last topic I, I want to make sure we get to, um, it fascinates me, even though if someone asked me what I knew about it, I would probably say nothing really. I talk about it a lot, but I couldn't, couldn't really explain anything about it. Um, the multiverse. Um, I'm obsessed with, uh, I've had paranormal experts on and even people who, who have claimed that they've encountered aliens on. And uh, with both of them, I've brought up, you know, well, maybe, maybe this alien was actually, is there a way that they could have been a being who just crossed a multiversal plane and just, you know, blipped into the universe? I, there's no way to measure it, but there's also no way to prove that it was an alien. And same with, with ghosts and spirits. And this paranormal investigator did say, he's like, look, I, I wish science would spend more time looking at this because the, the technology is really on the low end. And you know, I, he, he's had ghost encounters and whether they're legit or not, that that's not for me to say. Um, but I did say, you know, well, you know, this ghost haunting your house, what if it's just somebody who in another multiverse lives in this house and some phenomenon happens that they're, you know, I'm, and to me, that makes more sense than ghosts. <laughs> um, probably doesn't make much sense either way. But <laughs> But uh, explain how would how would the multiverse work if if it do you believe it exists and how how would you explain it to a dumb person like myself? <laughs> well, that's a question I've thought a lot about because when I first encountered the multiverse, uh, it seemed to be this arena where uh, oh this is a threat to Christianity, and so I, I spent a fair bit of time trying to understand you know when we're talking about the multiverse, what is it? Um, as Christians, how you know what's the scientific basis for it, and then also as a Christian, how do I how do I wrestle with the idea? Is it does the multiverse exist or not? And so the way I would describe a multiverse is that in order to talk about a multiverse, you need to define a universe. You know, because uni is one, multi is many. What's the, what's the one verse? Well, there's no arbitrary way to do that, but one of the best ways to define it, or at least uh, clear def clear definitions is to recognize that in our uh, universe that we have, and I'm gonna use that term kind of vaguely there, um, what is true is that there's a time in how long it has existed. It's about 14 billion years old. And there's a maximum speed which information can propagate through the universe, and that's the speed of light. And so if you ask the question, what is the farthest region where light could travel from that region to the earth, well, that's everything the Earth could interact with. And so that's a reasonable way to talk about a universe, right? It, we, we use the term observable universe because that's the most distant. That, that includes everything that being here on Earth I could ever possibly interact and know about. And so now the, the observable universe is large. It's uh, roughly the most distant object that could ever have communicated with Earth is about 50 billion light years away in every direction. So that's a very large region. I'm not. I'm not saying it's small, but the so, so we now have a definition of of a universe. So you know, again, I'm going to call it the observable universe. 
But the multiverse is just anything beyond that. And there's the very non-controversial idea that if I were to be instantaneously transported from here to the edge of the observable universe, I would just see a whole lot more of the same stuff. Um, in you know, we talk about uh, in, in cosmology, there's Big Bang cosmology, but then there's inflationary Big Bang cosmology where the universe in its earliest moments underwent a very rapid expansion. Well, if inflation happened, this more of the same multiverse exists. I mean, that's just the consequence of it. Uh, so it's it's kind of like the Star Wars universe. It's it's there's or Star Wars multiverse. There's just more of the same stuff along uh, a long time ago in a distant galaxy far far away. You just get far enough away, and it's more of the same looking stuff, but it largely looks like what we see. Now, that's not really a controversial idea. Like I said, if inflation happened, we live in that multiverse. And, uh, you know, the, the terminology that scientists may use for it is called a level one multiverse. Well, now that's one kind, but the, there's this other way of looking at the multiverse where it's not just more of the same stuff, that there's actually uh, these bubble multiverse, you know, the, this, this, this level one multiverse, there's a whole bunch of them out there where the laws of physics may look different. So the speed of right. light greater or smaller, gravity may be stronger or weaker, the weak force may exist or not, these sorts of things. Things that are fixed and constant in our universe and level one multiverse may vary out there in these other bubbles. And that's typically the type of multiverse that you're talking about when you're dealing with scientists, that, that kind of level two multiverse. So it's, it's not just a whole lot more of the same stuff, it's other, universes where the laws of physics may look different. Uh, and so that's typically what we're talking about when you're talking about a multiverse. And, uh, you know, so now the question is, would ghosts or angels or demons play in there? And, and actually, I find if, if you're going to, when we're talking about that, when you're dealing with the, you know, spirit or you know, these kind of uh, ghost or paranormal or, or even the UFO encounters, the ones that we can, if you, if you remove the ones that we kind of have a, a reasonable explanation for, like it's a flare on a distant uh, oil well, or it's some space or some uh, aircraft from Russia, or, you know, things that we have a natural explanation for. Let's move all those out. When you look at what's left, the, a, a very reasonable explanation for those is that's actually demonic activity. It's consistent that the pattern of, pattern of behavior is consistent with demonic activity. And well, if Christianity is correct, then there is another realm beyond our observable universe. There's the spiritual realm where the angels and the demonic exist. And so, uh, you know, th there's, I don't know that science has the capacity to test that because science I think a, a reasonable way to find it is that you're looking for natural explanations for natural phenomena. And so is a is an angel or a demon a natural explanation? We could have that discussion uh, maybe in maybe at some point in time we'll decide that's a, a natural explanation or not. But so th this is where kind of that question gets hard to deal with. I, I don't think the multiverse is a good explanation for uh, this kind of UFO, ghost, paranormal stuff. Um, I don't know how you study that with science because those are not natural explanations, if you will. And so, so this is, you're kind of getting some of the philosophy of science when you're wrestling with this and there's not an agreed upon way, but generally most scientists will look that that kind of paranormal stuff is outside what science is dealing with because it's not natural causes to explain natural phenomena. 
Right. And, and it sounds like another thing where, you know, it, it's so theoretical that it's, it's almost uh, presumptive to assume anything about it. Right. I mean, if, you know, I guess part of it, I even think in my head when you were saying, and you kind of alluded to this, I mean, if you're a Christian, you believe in a heaven and a hell, you could almost argue, well, those are, you know, those are different universes too. So we're already talking about a multiverse. Um, well, and that that was one of those big realizations. It's like, you can set the multiverse up so that it's antagonist to Christianity. But when you look at it, there's this universe I don't know what God might have created before or after, but it seems like the angelic realm was created outside or before this one or prior to whatever that means, considering space and time were created here in this universe. Uh, but then there's also the new heaven and new earth, which is a, at the very minimum, the laws of physics look very different there than they do here. And so the idea of God creating multiple realms is, uh, the, the scripture teaches that. So there's nothing inherent about the multiverse that is anti-biblical or against Christianity. Some of the ways it's formal, formulated get to uh, in ways that do. Uh, you know, if you have the kind of many worlds where, uh, you know, you, you've got these places where Christ, he died once for all. Well, if everything happens, you know, if, if everything's just purely physical, well, then you've got earths and christ scattered throughout the multiverse you know th then you get some theological problems but that's not those are particular interpretations of the multiverse not the idea that a multiverse exists and so uh you know i don't just because somebody can come up with a version of the multiverse that is antagonistic towards christianity doesn't mean that the multiverse is antagonistic towards christianity that just means somebody's found one way that it is and in all and if i'm honest those just are those are clues that, well, the way you formulated the multiverse is probably wrong, because I have a lot of good evidence that points to the truth of Christianity. Right. And and the thing that I would say to the people who develop in an, in an antagonistic way is they don't have any more proof than, than I mean, really, you know, than, than me. <laughs> like, they probably have more knowledge, but they don't have proof. Uh, nobody's defined, you know, definitively that there is or isn't a multiverse, right? I mean, so. Well, I, I will go on record and I'm on record having said this before. I do think we can establish whether a multiverse will exist or not. Because, you know, as I said, if inflation happened, right. there's a whole lot more than what we can see. But we have a lot of mechanisms for explaining how inflation happens. And if if most of the current mechanism, if any of the current mechanisms are correct, then we certainly, then we live in this level two multiverse as well. And so if we can determine that our mechanisms for inflation are correct, then that would be evidence that we live in a, this level two multiverse. And yeah, I think that'd be a fascinating discovery that the challenge with that is not, does it exist? But what does it actually look like? Because one of the problems you run into is that I can say, okay, this mechanism produces a multiverse, but I can never actually measure what the multiverse out there looks like. I can't tell whether the laws of physics were actually different or the same. So that doesn't answer the question, did the law, did the speed of light have to be 3.8 or 3.0 times 10 to the eight meters per second, or could it have been different? Um, I can say, well, maybe it could be different and then my multiverse would look that way. Or I can say, no, it's gotta be the same. And then my multiverse would look that way but I can't do any sort of measurement to determine which was the proper way to look at it. So 
I think we can establish that a multiverse exists, but you end up with this odd conundrum that whatever you put into the multiverse is what you get out of it. So it doesn't help us answer some of these questions that we really want answers to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I, I love this conversation because it, the, the thing, and this is not to, to say anything about the uh, politics whatsoever, let's be clear, but the catchphrase that was going crazy, and no matter what side your belief system is on as far as what the message was, but the catchphrase, trust the science, uh, and, and, you know, a certain person said something about if you doubt this, you're, you're, you don't believe in science. I'm like, that's, you're supposed to question science. You're not supposed to trust science. You're supposed to always, I mean, most great scientific discoveries are when someone has a question about what has been established in science. Uh, philosophically, we shouldn't be telling people just trust the science. We should be saying question the science, find out why, ask why. Now, obviously, I'm not talking about this particular issue. We can leave that off the table. But I do think that's kind of, that almost ties back to the very beginning of our conversation with education. It's like, you shouldn't be taught just this is the way it is. You should want to ask, why is that the way it is? Are you sure that's the way it is? Um, and I guess that kind of circles the education and the, uh, the know-it-all-isms I was talking about. It's just science is, is beautiful because uh, you, should, you can question it. You should question it. And obviously, there are people who are smarter like yourself who know more about it and, and can answer a lot of the questions. But I love even you're like, in the very beginning, you said, well, we can explain about 5% of what the universe is, maybe. Um, and uh, I wish that would be more of the attitude that was relayed amongst everyone is just yep, ask questions, learn. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I, I agree. And that's, that was one of the frustrations I had is that um, you know, th there's, you know, I, again, ignoring the politics of it is, you know, when this disease first came out, we just didn't know a lot about it. And so trusting the science was a very, what, it, what does that mean? Because we don't know how, how big a deal is this, how contagious. We did a lot of things that now we look back, it's like, okay, no, that's not the way it worked. But that's exactly how the scientific process works is that you, you start out with something, you say, hey, here's my explanation, and then you continue to gather more data. It just took a while to gather enough data to answer some good questions. Uh, but th there's kind of two sides of that. One is that science, or, or sorry, the way science is communicated, it's like, we got the answers, don't question them, this is just the way it is. And that gets, that misses that there's this explanation, scientific explanations are always provisional. We always, you ask those questions to help us grow and learn and understand more. But then there can be another side of, well, nothing, we don't know anything, we, you know, anything could be true. Well, no, that's not true because there are these observational facts that you've got to deal with. So just because you don't like somebody's explanation of the facts doesn't mean you get to ignore the fact that there are certain, you know, given this, given this particular disease, there are certain numbers of people who don't get or have no symptoms and some that do. There are certain numbers of people who have more serious cases and don't. And that has race. And I mean, there's all sorts of factors tied up into that. You don't get to say, well, I don't like those facts, so I'm going to ignore them. You can say, hey, your explanation of those facts doesn't work. And that's where science works really well, because now you're going to say, all right, what's the next set of facts? What new experiments, what new observations, what new data can we bring to decide or evaluate whether your explanation is better than my explanation? 
And when you have a wrong explanation or the facts don't line up, you got to go back and reevaluate and reassess and re uh, rebuild your model. Either you got to throw it away because the facts are so out of line with it, or you have to rebuild your model to account for the new facts. And now we can have a good discussion about how do these models work? It's, it's a process that's never going to end. But it's also, you know, so I, I see two, you know, those, those kind of two errors. One, we can just, well, I don't have to pay attention to the facts that are there. And the other is, well, I can't even question. And the reality of it is we were dealing with policy, not the actual science itself. So there's a whole lot of weird things. And if we're not careful, we end up throwing out the baby with the bathwater. So, yeah, no. And, and one thing, uh, and it may have been you who, who said this on something I was listening to recently, um, but it's, uh, uh, and you did say earlier, being wrong is not a bad thing. I wish everyone would get that. Being wrong in science means you just found that there, that's not the answer. Let's move on to the next. It's a good thing when you actually shut that down, we move on. You might not win a Nobel Prize for it, but it's still beneficial to science. Um, but people Absolutely. don't want to get their wrong. <laughs> Contributed to the body of knowledge. You now know this is not the right explanation. That's still... That's a, that's a good contribution. In fact, I've, you know, at least some of my papers are, we looked for this and it wasn't there. In fact, a, a, an unusually large number of my papers are, hey, we looked for this and it wasn't there. And so every now and again, you say, hey, we looked for this and it was there. And that's exciting. But all of those are contributing to our understanding of what's going on. Uh, and I, I agree with you. Just being willing to look and evaluate, ask those questions. And, and how do we evaluate whether an explanation aligns with reality or not. Uh, that, I think that's an important question to ask and one that we seem to have gotten away from in our discussion of it for one reason or another. Well, doctor, I, I think you're the first doctor who's been on the podcast uh, in, uh, gosh, I think I've recorded over 70 episodes now. So congratulations on that. <laughs> um, where... Uh, I'm excited. So. <laughs> I've really not had a great time here. This has been fun. <laughs> Thank you. Where uh, where can people find you? Uh... So best best way to go, uh, I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe. Go to reasons.org. There's a wealth of resources there. Uh, if you want to follow me, I have uh, you know Facebook and Twitter. There's RTB underscore official is the main site. You can find me at RTB underscore Jay's Wearing. That's Z is in zebra, W-E-E-R-I-N-K. Those are the best ways to connect up with me. Perfect. And uh, listeners, I will link all of those things in the show notes. Uh, Jeff, I really appreciated your time coming on here. I'm glad you were, uh, <laughs> you, you didn't get frustrated with my lack of knowledge and <laughs> you, you, you dealt with me very well. <laughs> That's a good question. These are fun questions and I think a lot of people are asking these questions. So like I said, I had a great time, enjoyed being here and hope we can do it again sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would, I would love it. Thanks again, Jeff. Have a good day. Well, that was it. That's a wrap. Thank you, Dr. Jeff Zwierink, for coming on. Uh, very appreciative of him. Uh, like he said at the end, maybe we'll uh, we'll talk to each other again in the future. Um, he also had uh, referred me to a couple of uh, additional scientists that I may have on in the future. So let me know what you think of this one. Uh, you know, I get feedback sometimes and I never know whether I'm allowed to read it on air uh, or not. Uh, but either way, you know, shoot me feedback. I'd love to get more. And uh, especially if you're okay with me reading it uh, on the show, 
feel that could just be a fun added element. I got some feedback from um, from Facebook. You know, I uh, occasionally toss a few bucks uh, into advertising on Facebook. I know that uh, it does lead to a bit more traffic. So, uh, you know, it's uh, you pick your audience and, uh, you know, you get sometimes the fun comments like uh, this one that I'll share from uh, Mr. Gary Richard. And he said, uh, where is it? It said, get off my page, butthead. It actually says, get of my page, butthead. Uh, And I said, Gary Richard, sorry, the marketing efforts are fully directed at old cantankerous men named Gary, so you're stuck with me. Uh, So thanks, Gary. Um, Boy, I bet when he watches television, like if a commercial comes on, he just starts screaming, get off! Get off my screen, Microsoft. Get off my screen. I don't know what, uh, you know, paid advertising is. Oh, Gary. Don't be like Gary. And yes, I, I did look at his look at his, uh, his profile. He is an old man. Uh, so that's why I made the old cantankerous comment. Uh, anywho, <laughs> hey, I got a lot of... I don't check this as often as I probably should, but... Uh, last time I had checked Apple, I had like 10 ratings and, uh, I checked and I had over 20. Um, so I feel like in the last month, uh, I've had a, a good amount of, um, good amount of ratings. So thank you for that. Please. Uh, it helps give me a rating on Apple. You can write a review if you're so inclined. You can also rate me on Spotify or IMDB. Um, you can rate the podcast itself, which I'd love to get 10 stars from you on that. You can also rate each individual episode and I'd love honest, honest feedback. You know, I think a bad episode, I'd be maybe a little more generous, but a good episode, you know, throw me a nine, throw me a 10, uh, give me those stars. I can start using those to figure out, you know, if you like certain kinds of guests a little bit more than others, then we'll, uh, we'll book more of those guests. But anyways, I appreciate it. Uh, again, if you would be so kind, give me a subscription wherever you're following to this podcast. Give me one on YouTube. Uh, follow me on uh, the Facebook, the uh, Twitter. I started a TikTok. I've so far been good. I said I'd do two a week. Two weeks in, I got four TikToks. So I didn't lie. I'll do two a week, even if I still really don't understand how TikTok works. All right. Thanks for listening. Come in next week. Have a come back next week. I have a very fun podcast with a cool guy. Uh, We talk about a lot of things, comedy and uh, also crypto. Uh, So fun conversation to be had and maybe uh, informative as well. So I'll see you next week. Hope if you celebrate it, I hope you had a happy Easter. Peace.